Go ahead and turn with me to the book of Genesis, to the book of Genesis. As we pick up here in our verse-by-verse study in these days of Genesis 25 through 35, the life of Jacob, um, this morning we have come to Genesis 27, Genesis chapter 27. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, Genesis 27, verse 1, here's what we read. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau was a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. 
So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. We'll pick up with the rest of the passage tonight. I wonder if it will surprise you to hear me say that this is a very encouraging passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture that ought to cause your faith in God to soar to new heights. This is a passage of Scripture that should bring to Christians much comfort. It's a passage that gives us more reason to have real peace in our hearts through Christ. See, Isaac has come to old age. And Isaac has lived a life of faith. From his childhood, Isaac has known the true God. God Himself appeared to Isaac and spoke to Isaac more than once during his lifetime. Isaac has acted in faith on numerous occasions. Now like his father Abraham, Isaac's life had many mistakes and many moments of outright sin. But overall, the picture of Genesis is that Isaac was a godly man in his generation. And so as we focus on this family, the family of Isaac, we might expect to see something healthy. We might expect to see something ideal. Surely Isaac and Rebekah must have a wonderful marriage. Surely Isaac and Rebekah's sons must be respectable, godly men. And yet, that's not what we see at all. Instead, and especially in this passage, we find sin and sin and more sin. We find that Isaac's family is a family that is, that is torn, a family that is messed up, a family that is struggling. And I imagine there are some of us who can relate to this. We've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We love our Savior. We trust our Savior. But we are still caught up in this battle with sin and there are still areas of our lives that that desperately need more grace. There are areas of our lives in which real conviction is still needed. Real repentance is still needed. Real help from the Lord Jesus Christ is still needed. We still sin. It grieves us, but it's true. We, we still sin. And so here's the question. Do our sins thwart the plans of God? When we sin, do we mess up God's purposes for us? Can the evil acts of men and women surprise God or throw a wrench in God's designs for this world? You see, one of the overarching truths of this chapter is that God works even through people's sins and over people's sins to accomplish His good purposes. Let me say it again. God works even through people's sins and over people's sins to accomplish His good purposes. God is not the author of sin. Sin by its very essence is anti-God. Sin, what is sin? It is anything that is not of God. Anything that does not describe His character or His nature. So sin cannot come from God. 
He is not the author of sin. But in those moments when we or other people act in wickedness, we can be sure that God is working and His good purposes will still be accomplished. Later in the book of Genesis, we're going to meet Joseph. This man Joseph, Jacob's son, will be hated by his brothers. Joseph will be sold into slavery by his brothers. These brothers will commit a heinous sin against Joseph. And yet later in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph is going to look his brothers in the eyes and say, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, even the the foul thoughts that ran through his brothers' minds, their conspiracy against him, the evil deed that they performed, all of these were still a part of God's sovereign plan. God used even their evil acts ultimately to save their lives. Think of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The Syrians and the Babylonians, God God raised up these arrogant pagan armies to come and bring judgment on His own people. God-hating men came into villages and killed men, killed women, killed children. Homes were set on fire. Women were raped and abused. There were many wicked acts that took place. Entire families were wiped out. Yet the prophets of the Old Testament tell us again and again that these wicked, outright wicked acts of the Assyrians and the Babylonians were a part of God's good plan. They were not a wrench in His plans that messed everything up and now He's got to go back to the drawing board and figure out how He's going to make good of this. They were a part of God's good plan, a plan that included judgment on His people. You see, ultimately all things happened to bring history to the right time and the right circumstances for the Lord Jesus Christ to come into this world. Jesus Christ was put on a cross by wicked men. Friends, has there ever been a sin more despicable than this one? Human beings killing their Creator on a cross. Human beings turning on the One that has loved them, that gave them everything they ever had, and nailing Him to a tree. The cross was the darkest day in human history. The cross was the vilest sin ever committed. And even here, God was doing something very, very good. Satan, Judas, the religious leaders, Pilate, the Jewish mob, the Roman guards, all of these people come together in a conglomeration of wickedness to bring Jesus to the cross. And yet behind it all is the almighty hand of God working through their sin to accomplish the salvation of His people and the glorifying of His name. This morning we have one of those passages of Scripture that remind us afresh why our faith is well-placed when it is placed in God. For even the sins of His people do not mess up His plans. 
I say this to you not to diminish your grief over sin. May your grief over sin be great. But do find comfort. Do find comfort in knowing that your God is wise enough that even your sins are a part of His good plan. His promises will be fulfilled. Let's see it here in this context. The context here is a blessing. right? This blessing was a solemn oath that a father would give to his sons. The father would, would consider all that he has seen in his sons, both the good and the bad. He would consider the kind of men that his sons have become. And then he would call on God to act in certain ways towards these sons and their descendants. Later in Genesis, we'll see Jacob himself with his twelve sons gather around him and he will give to each son a blessing. And it's very clear in that passage that Jacob has spent a lot of time thinking about each son and the kind of man that son has become. And the blessing that he gives corresponds to that son's personality. And he asks God to respond, to, to act toward that son and his descendants in different ways. These blessings were very, very important because once they were uttered, they were irrevocable. That is, once they were said, they could not be taken away. Here in our passage, Isaac is going to think that he's blessing Esau when in fact he's blessing Jacob. And even once he learns this truth, he cannot undo what he has done. It is done. In verses 1-4, through four, we learn that Isaac has become old and blind. His days on earth are numbered. He declares to Esau, the oldest of the two twin boys, the, the firstborn son, he declares to Esau his intention to bless him. But Isaac here is blind in more ways than one. And all that we've seen so far, it appears that Isaac's love for Esau has clouded his judgment. And maybe not just his love for Esau, his love for Esau's food. Over and over and over again. In these passages about Isaac, there's reference to his love for food. And so Esau's game has clouded Isaac's judgment. I mean, Esau has been a foolish son. Esau has been a rebellious son. Esau has been a reckless son. And what's more, God has already declared prophetically that Esau shall serve Jacob. The older son shall serve the younger son. It is Jacob, not Esau, whom God has declared who is to be especially blessed. But Isaac's heart favors Esau. And therefore he declares his intention against God's spoken word to bless Esau with this great blessing. Here is Isaac's sin, acting in disobedience to the Word of God, which he has already received. What makes this blessing unusually important is that God has already declared that He is going to bless this family greatly. God blessed Abraham with great material wealth. And that great material wealth was then passed down to Isaac. And already in our studies, we've seen how Isaac has even increased all the more in prosperity and riches, so much so that his neighbors are afraid of him. 
Isaac's wealth was then supposed to be passed down to his sons, with Esau, the older son, gaining the greater amount of the inheritance. But in a moment of foolishness, Esau sold that inheritance to Jacob for a bowl of stew. So, now, if his father Isaac will call on God to bless him in abundance and to make him the greater son, Esau thinks surely God will grant Isaac's request. In other words, what we have here is Isaac and Esau's attempt to undo some of the damage that Esau has already done when he sold his birthright. He wants, Isaac is seeking to procure for his older son Esau the higher place. Though God has already said the one will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Rebecca has overheard what is going on. She wants Jacob to obtain the blessing. Rebecca is acting in accordance with God's word, but she goes about it in a wicked, wicked way. When she sees that her husband Isaac is about to act in complete contrariety to what God has declared, she should have gone to her knees in prayer. God, help me as a godly wife to know how to help my husband see what he's doing. Maybe then she should have gone to Isaac and with gentleness spoken to him about what she overheard. Instead, we find Rebecca contriving this deceitful plot. This is a family split in two. Notice that in verse 1, Esau is called his son, while in verse 6, Jacob is called her son. Sides have been taken. We've talked earlier about how playing favorites with our children often leads to sin. It's exactly what happens here. Remember, Rebecca knew what God had said to her. God had declared to her that Jacob would be the prominent son. At the bottom of Rebecca's sin here is her failure to trust in God's Word. After all, if God declared it, will it not come to pass? If God has said the older will serve the younger, does she need to fall into fear and anxiety and get bent out of shape and fall into sin, feeling she must figure out a way in her own strength to accomplish this thing? She would have done well to have been still and quiet and known that the Lord is God. He will accomplish His purpose. God does not need her help to do what He's declared He will do. But rather than believing, she acts in wickedness. And then there's Jacob himself. Jacob is not reckless like his brother. Jacob is the cold and calculating one. Esau is the kind of man that would rob a store on a whim and get caught in the process. Jacob is the kind of man who would take his time to plan the robbery. He would make sure every detail was covered so that he could get away clean. Both of these men, as we have seen again and again, are full of wickedness. Very different men, full of wickedness. Notice how Jacob responds to his mother when she shares her plan with him. Look in verse 11. Notice that, that when she brings her plan to him, Jacob does not reply, Oh, mother, we cannot do that. He does not say, Oh, mother, that's, that would be deceptive. 
That would be dishonest. That would be wicked. Let us trust God instead. That's not his response. His response is, we don't want to get caught. Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. There was real risk here. Because if Isaac were to discover that he was being manipulated and deceived, if he were to discover that this man claiming to be Esau was in fact his son Jacob, he could pronounce a curse. This is what Noah did to his son Ham and Ham's descendants, Canaan. Jacob doesn't want to risk that, for then that curse would be irrevocable. Jacob, too, is not trusting what God has said. Jacob, too, is not saying, well, if God has declared that these things will come to pass, let me rest in Him. He will bring them to pass. No, Jacob is is willing to act wickedly to obtain the blessing. He is shrewd. He wants this thing carefully planned out. Rebekah solemnly declares to Jacob, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Rebecca says, if you get cursed, I'll take the curse. Obey my voice. Here is a moment where we see the limits of parental authority. We are to be submissive to those whom God has placed in authority over us. Children are to obey their parents. Workers are to obey their bosses. As church members, we are to obey those that the Lord has put over us. As citizens, we are to obey our leaders in every area where there's authority. Even if it's a, you're, you're an athlete on a team, you're to obey your coach. If you're in a neighborhood community group, obey the appointed leaders. We are to be submissive to the authorities that God has placed over us. But we must never disobey the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Which means any time that a human authority gives you a command that you know is in direct disobedience to the commands of Christ, you are to disobey so that you may obey Christ. Jacob should not have obeyed his mother here. He should have pleaded with her to change her mind about what she was doing and to repent. That is not what Jacob did. Instead, we have deception, dishonesty, unbelief. And Jacob goes along with the plan. Jacob goes, he kills two young goats. He he kills them, sacrifices them, cleans them, brings his mother the meat so that she will cook the meal. The ESV says in verse 15 that she took the best garments of Esau and placed them on Jacob. Do you see that word best in verse 15? That word translated best can also be translated as precious. These were probably clothing set aside to be used for special religious ceremonies. These were special clothes of Esau's probably that had been set aside for this day when he would be blessed. And now Rebekah takes what belonged to the older son and places it upon the younger son. What God has declared he will do, Rebekah takes it into her own hands and seeks to to do herself. 
Jacob goes to his aged father, my father. Here I am. Who are you, my son? I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Jacob is acting like Satan here. Satan is the great deceiver. Satan is the one who disguises truth. And how many times have we followed that path? How many times have we told lies in order to benefit ourselves? How many times have we failed to be pure in heart and instead we've dabbled in deceit? Maybe we've taken credit for something when the credit didn't fully belong to us. Maybe we've shifted the blame to others when if we were honest, the blame did belong to us. Maybe we've only revealed half the story in order to protect ourselves from being rebuked by others or even just being looked down upon by others. I will tell them this much, but I won't tell them this. We manipulate others by what we tell them so that things will work out better for us. Deceit. Dishonesty. And what is the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not lie. Church, have you at all times and in all circumstances spoken the truth from your heart? Have you been consistent and persistent in ensuring that every word you speak is accurate? That every word that comes from your mouth is in accordance with truth. Whether you speak it in public or in private. Whether it is a spoken word or a written word. Whether it concerns you or whether it concerns others. Friends, are we not guilty of having told lies to maliciously hurt others or to selfishly serve ourselves? Have you ever helped start a rumor? Helped spread a rumor? Just given an ear to a rumor? Have you ever misrepresented the facts when you were selling something or buying something in order that you might better gain from it? Have you ever lied in flattering someone or lied by being more critical of someone than was fair? Do you use words like, He always does this. She never does that. Friends, is there deceit in your lips? Is there dishonesty in your heart? then we ought to all fall on our face before the God of truth. We ought to fall on our face before the God who has never spoken a lie, nor can He lie. Our God is pure and holy. He declares in the book of Revelation that He will cast liars who do not turn from their lying into that pit called hell. We ought to be greatly ashamed of our lying. We ought to be greatly grieved in our hearts that we are even capable of such things. We need to acknowledge that we are 
deserving of the very wrath of God. Has God not told us to tell the truth? Does not our own consciences convict us that lying is a great evil? Why then will we be dishonest? Does not our God know what is best for us? If He tells us to tell the truth, why do we deceive? Why do we lie? Why do we manipulate words for our own benefit? We ought to repent and turn from it. We ought to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Him that our sins can be forgiven. We need to run to Him for forgiveness. We need to run to Him for help. Lord Jesus, purify my heart. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We need to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him say to us, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Jacob stood before his father in sheer deceit. I am Esau, he says. Even with the effects of old age, Isaac isn't immediately being fooled. For one thing, if Esau was to go out and hunt game, he is returned incredibly quickly. A hunting trip could take days. It's been only a few hours. How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? Because Yahweh, your God, granted me success. Jacob brings the very name of Yahweh into his deceit. He's already lying. He's already stealing from his brother. He's already dishonoring his father. Now he's using the name of the Lord in vain. How many commandments are we going to break here, Jacob? Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really Esau or not. Jacob comes near to his father. And Jacob says, the voice is, I'm sorry, Isaac says, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And so there's this one final test, the test of smell. Come near, kiss me, my son. When Jacob comes near, Isaac smells the garments of Esau and he is convinced and he blesses Jacob. And so we've seen that Isaac is sinning by seeking to bless Esau in disobedience to the spoken word of God. We've seen that Rebekah is sinning in conspiring to deceive her husband. We see that Jacob is sinning in carrying out this deceit for his own gain. What we have here is sin, sin, sin. But in the midst of all of this sin, which has some very painful consequences that we will look at tonight, in the midst of all of this sin, God is working. And God's purposes are being accomplished. God did not need Rebekah or Jacob's help, but He also could have poured out more grace upon them so that, they were hearts, so that their hearts would not desire to do this wicked thing. Instead, God chose to hold back His grace. And He controlled both the outward and the inward circumstances so that of their own wills, they chose to do this very thing. They are responsible for their sin, yet it came about just as He had determined. The prophecy 
of Genesis 25 is coming true. Jacob's going to become a changed man. Jacob's going to become a true follower of God. Jacob's going to be changed. His name's going to be changed to Israel. And from Israel will come the nation of Israel. And from the nation of Israel will come the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus will come in His appointed day and His appointed time with the stage set exactly as God had been working for thousands of years to set it so that everything that ever happened leading to the day of Christ's coming was worked by the hand of God to bring about that day exactly as it had been determined in the sovereign counsel of God. Thomas Watson says, several poisonous ingredients put together being worked by the skill of a pharmacist can make a medicine which works for the good of the patient. In the same way, all of God's providences, being divinely tempered and sanctified, work together for the best of His saints. He who loves God and is called according to His purpose may rest assured that everything in this world is working for good. Dear Christian, even the sins of Genesis 27 took place in time and history as a, God, as a part of God's plan for your everlasting good. Tonight, we're going to come face to face with the consequences of these sins. There were real consequences. When we sin, we can expect negative consequences to follow. But praise God that as we grieve over our sin, as we work in the power of Christ to defeat sin in our lives, we can take comfort in knowing that even our sins do not thwart God's plans for us. God works over and through the sins of people to accomplish His good purposes. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like Me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all My purpose. So let me close this way. Why should this bring such comfort to us? Because all of our hope rests on the belief that our God will do what He has said. We are trusting that by believing in Jesus, we're going to be found blameless on the last day and brought into paradise. We are trusting that all things really are working for our good. We are trusting that Jesus Christ really is coming back and that He really is going to set all things right as He said. But what if sins, the sins of human beings, really do throw a wrench in God's plans? Then what comes of our faith? What comes of our hope? What if we come to the last day only to hear God say to us, I really meant well. I did the best I could. Things were going smoothly. My promises were going to come true. You were going to be blessed and forgiven and enter heaven. But there was all this sin and I couldn't make heads and tails of it and it just messed everything up. Is that a God worthy of your trust? Is that a God whom we should gather to sing praises to? 
Is that a, a God who will bring confidence to your soul? Not that kind of God. But the true God is a God who says, I see your sin, and your sin grieves me, and your sin ought to grieve you. But dear Christian, in Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven, and you can take comfort in this. Even in your sin, I am working for good. Dear church, our faith in God is well-placed. Let us trust Him all the more. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, this God is worthy of your trust. Trust Him. Turn to His Son, Jesus. Give yourself entirely to Him. He is a far better master of your life than you are master of your life. I guarantee it. Trust Him. Let's pray. So I'll take a few moments just to, uh, to spend some time responding quietly in our hearts. Think about what's been said, what you've heard. How would God 